All right, so last week we talked a lot about John the Baptist, who was called by God to introduce the Messiah, um, introduce the Messiah to Israel. And so John was the voice that heralded the coming of the Christ. And wow, did he ever do an amazing job. You know, it's very interesting to me that during at least part of John the Baptist's ministry, did you guys know that at least during part of his ministry, he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah? We see that today starting in verse 31. And so right now, if you are looking at John chapter one, verse 31, can you say amen? Here we go, it says, this is John the Baptist speaking, I myself did not know him. Well, who's him? In the context, it's Jesus. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Again, John the Baptist called to introduce the Messiah to Israel. Now, when he said, when he admitted that he didn't know Jesus, John wasn't saying that he didn't know Jesus existed, all right? So as we've studied in the past, John's mother, Elizabeth, was related to Jesus's mother, Mary, and so most scholars believe that John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. So of course, John knew that Jesus existed. Um, As children growing up, even though John uh, grew up down in Judea and Jesus grew up up here in Galilee, Because they were related, uh, most likely they hung out at special family gatherings. They would hang out in Jerusalem during the various Jewish feast days. And over time, John the Baptist, as he's getting to know his cousin, he knew this, this man has a super strong character, a solid reputation as a righteous man. But he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until something very special happened. And the very special thing that happened was the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus at his baptism. All right, so we see that in verses 32 through 34. And so verse 32, it says, and John, John the Baptist, bore witness, quote, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. Now again, he's not saying I didn't know my cousin existed. Of course he did. He's saying I didn't know Jesus was Messiah. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I love John the Baptist's testimony right here in verse 34. I wanna encourage you guys, man, share your testimony. Tell the people how you feel about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done in your life. John says in verse 34, and I have seen and bore witness that this is the, go ahead and shout it out, the Son of God. All right, so when did John the Baptist become absolutely sure that his cousin was the Christ, the Son of God? He became absolutely sure at Jesus' baptism. Okay, so that uh, leads to the question, why was Jesus baptized? Well, here's why he was not baptized. (laughs) Jesus was not baptized because he, like other Jews who went to John the Baptist out in the Jordan River, um, that, that, that Jesus needed to confess his sins before he was baptized by, by John. No way. Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, was absolutely sinless. 
Jesus Christ was the lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was absolutely perfect. So why was he baptized by John the Baptist in John's baptism as John was preparing the Jews for the Messiah? Well, there's lots of reasons, but here's a few. At the beginning of the the Lord's public ministry, he wanted to publicly endorse John as his forerunner and as his herald. The religious establishment in Jerusalem, they were rejecting the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus wants to take a public stand for his cousin. He's like, yes, this is the forerunner. And by the way, I'm the one that he's been preparing you for. And so another reason that Jesus was baptized was because he wanted there to be a public record that his baptism showed the triunity of God. And so we know that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, later they recorded the baptism of Jesus. This is what Matthew said, that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. As I said in week one of our study, Jesus' baptism, what a beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? The Father speaking from heaven. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Son coming up out of the water and the Spirit like a dove descending and remaining on our Lord Jesus Christ, showing us, this is just one of the passages but showing us that there is one God. Can you guys please say one God? (laughs) So important. One God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it was at Jesus' baptism that John the Baptist knew for sure that his cousin was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Matthew tells us that after his baptism, what happened? After his baptism, the Spirit of God led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And so Jesus, tempted by Satan, after 40 days and 40 nights, what happens is that he emerges from the wilderness victorious over the enemy. Listen, if you're a born-again Christian, you need to know that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you, and that power can help you overcome the enemy. That power can help you overcome temptation in your life. That power can help you live a victorious Christian life. And so, he emerges from the wilderness, Jesus does, victorious over the enemy, and that's when he returns to the Jordan River, and that's when John the Baptist, as we saw last week, points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Jesus Christ baptized, Jesus Christ goes out into the wilderness uh, for about six weeks or so, then he comes back to the Jordan River, and that's when John points at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's amazing to me. I mentioned it once or twice already in other sermons, but I believe personally that John the Baptist has been having his devotions in Isaiah 53. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, listen, you've got to go back later today 
to the Old Testament 700 years before Christ, read Isaiah 53, because even though it's in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus Christ. Amazing, detailed prophecy about his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection in the Old Testament, showing that he's a lamb in Isaiah 53. And so John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God. He's so impacted by this truth that the next day he proclaimed it again. Please look at verse 35 now. Verse 35, it says that the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. There it is again. Now you need to know that in John chapter three, verse 26, John the Baptist is called rabbi or teacher. What does that mean? That means like, that just like every other rabbi, John the Baptist had disciples, guys who followed him. But here's what I love about John, is that as soon as he was sure that Jesus is the Messiah, do you know what John told his disciples? Follow him. <laughs> Follow him. And so the two disciples of John in our text, we see are number one, Andrew. Who's Andrew? Andrew was the brother of Simon Peter. Everybody knows Simon Peter, right? Okay, so he's one of them. But who's the other one? Well, I'm convinced, 100%, and all the scholars that I read this week are convinced 100% that the other disciple is John, the, the uh, apostle, the one who authors the gospel that we're reading, giving us an eyewitness account of what's happening at this time. And so Andrew, brother of Simon Peter, and John, the author of the gospel that we're studying, and brother of James, who's martyred by Herod later on in the book of Acts, I think Acts chapter 12, these two guys, I don't know if you ever knew this, but the author of this gospel at one time when he was a young man was a disciple of John the Baptist. And so a beautiful story here, John the Baptist looks at his two disciples and he says, hey Andrew, hey John, you see him? That's the Lamb of God. And how did Andrew and John respond? Please look at verse 37 now. Verse 37, it says that the two disciples heard him say this and they followed John the Baptist. They kept following John the Baptist. Is that what it says? No. Who did they follow? Shout out his name, please. Jesus. Jesus. And so when John the Baptist saw Andrew and John leave him and begin to follow Jesus, did John the Baptist say, hey, wait a minute, guys, what are you doing? I thought I was your leader. Did he say that? Did John the Baptist become envious? Did John the Baptist become jealous? No, of course not. He did not respond that way, why? Because John the Baptist knew that it wasn't about John the Baptist, it's about Jesus Christ. That's his mentality, that's his humility. In fact, later on, John the Baptist would say this, classic verse, he must increase, but I must do what? Decrease. Ladies and gentlemen, when John the Baptist saw Andrew and John leave him and follow Jesus, he knew, I have accomplished the goal of my life. What goal is that? The goal is not building an ego-driven ministry where everything revolves around you. That's not the goal. It's the goal of pointing people 
to Jesus Christ. That's the goal. It's the goal of John decreasing and Jesus Christ increasing. And that needs to be the goal of every pastor. That needs to be the goal of every missionary. That needs to be the goal of every school administrator and Christian school teacher and every Christian leader. Never to point people to us. Always to point people to Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. And if you haven't noticed yet, if you're visiting Calvary, we make a big deal about Jesus Christ. We're not embarrassed, we're not ashamed, why? Because we know that only Jesus Christ can change your life. And when we make a big deal about Jesus, what does that mean? He increases, we decrease. It's not about us, it's about him. I love John the Baptist, no wonder Jesus said he was so great. So the two men who were following the Lord at a distance Andrew and John, the author of the gospel. I don't know if they were 30 yards behind Jesus, 50 yards, 100 yards, I don't know. But I know that they were in awe of the uh, man, capital M, who's walking in front of them. And I wonder if Andrew said to John, John, did you hear John the Baptist yesterday? He said that he's the Lamb of God. And John maybe said, yeah. And yesterday, John the Baptist said, He's the son of God. And as they're walking and as they're in awe at a distance, all of a sudden, shock, Jesus turns around and looks at them and says, what are you seeking? And they're probably like, ah, he's talking to us, right? Look at verse 38. It says, Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? All right, so John and Andrew, they knew the magnitude of the moment. They knew how how important this man was. And so they didn't want some little short conversation on the side of the road. No, they wanted extended time with the Lord in order to get to know him, in order to ask him a thousand different questions. Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they're like, um, can we just come over? Where are you staying? And Jesus replies in verse 39 now, he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, when exactly the disciples actually, quote unquote, got saved is a topic for another sermon. But here's what you need to know that John, the author of this gospel, when he meets Jesus Christ, that so impacted his life, he remembered the exact hour. He says it's the 10th hour. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, according to Roman time, a new day starts at 12 a.m., so the 10th hour would have been 10 a.m. But according to Jewish time, a new day starts at 6 a.m., so the 10th hour would have been 4 p.m. And so was it was it um, um, 4 p.m. or was it 10 a.m.? Well, John, later in the gospel, uses Jewish time 
And so if he uses Jewish time later in the gospel, there's no reason for us to think that he's using Roman time right now. And so the, what makes the most sense is that they arrived at the place where Jesus was staying at 4 p.m., thereabouts. Now, after they asked him where he was staying, look at it again, look at it again in verse 39. Jesus says, quote, come and you will see. I love that. Come and you will see. Did you guys know that that invitation from Jesus has gone out to so many people who are curious about him? Listen, if you're in this room or you're watching online right now or listening later on a podcast and you're curious about who Jesus is or what he's like, if you're wondering what is the big deal about this Jesus, why are they making such a big deal about him? I want you right now to hear Jesus give you the same invitation that he gave Andrew and John. Listen to Jesus say to you, come and you will see. I believe, in fact, I dare you. In fact, I D-dog double dare you. <laughs> if you're curious about Jesus, take him up on his offer. Go check him out. Here's what Lee Strobel did, the committed atheist who was a writer for the Chicago Tribune when his wife went to church and turned to Jesus Christ and became a Christian. He got annoyed that his wife's now a Christian. He's like, I didn't sign up for this. And so I'm gonna go disprove Jesus. And Lee Strobel, he went out to disprove Jesus. And by the end of all of it, that committed atheist became a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah. He read a book, you ought to read it. It's called The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel tasted and saw that the Lord is good. Didn't David say something about that? Yeah, David said, and we quote from Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is, shout out the word, good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so if you'll take up Jesus' offer, offer to come and see, I believe you're gonna be blown away by how good he is. And if you hear and understand the gospel of grace and you turn to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith, trusting him as the savior and Lord of your life, he will, according to John 1:12, make you a child of God. And that'll really rock your world. But the ball's in your court. It is your choice. And I hope you choose Jesus. And so after spending time with the Lord, Andrew and John, right, they're impacted to the core of their being. All right, so think about this with me. This is just logic. Whenever you're impacted by something or someone, what do you do? Here's what I do. I tell other people. And that's exactly what Andrew and John did in verses 40 through 42. Go ahead and look at it with me. It says that one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he, Andrew, brought him, Simon, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him. I love this, this is Peter meeting Jesus right here. And Jesus looked at him and said, quote, 
you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. All right, so follow the logic. Andrew and John are so impacted by the Lord Jesus Christ, they wanna bring other people to him, and they start with their family. And so the fact that it says that Andrew first found his brother um, infers that John also went looking for his brother, James. And so what happened was that Andrew first found Simon Peter, his brother, and then later on, John finds James, but both Andrew and John bring their brothers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Andrew's brother, Simon Peter. Everybody knows Simon Peter, right? He's the fisherman employed in the fishing business up on the Sea of Galilee. He's that impulsive guy, that loud-mouthed guy. He's always speaking before he thinks, right? That's Peter. And even though, um, well, here's what we, we, we see in, in the text is that apparently he's not up on the Sea of Galilee fishing right now in our Bibles. Right now, he is apparently in Jerusalem, Okay, and I can see Andrew texting his brother, Peter. He's like, bro, you are not gonna believe who John and I just met. Where are you? Let's meet up. And so Peter goes and finds his brother, Andrew. And ladies and gentlemen, when Peter approaches Andrew, Andrew did not say, hey, guess what? We found... <sighs> the Messiah no <laughs> no way listen when, when you meet Jesus he impacts your life and so Andrew looks at Peter and says we found the Messiah and what does he do he introduces Peter to Jesus I like what David Guzik said about all this this is so good by the way if you're looking for a, a commentator who's really solid I Highly recommend David Guzik's commentary at Blue Letter Bible um, or Enduring Word. But he says, quote, through the centuries, this is how most people come to faith in Jesus Christ. A Peter has an Andrew who introduces him to Jesus. And this is natural because it is the nature of Christian experience that those who enjoy the experience desire to share their experience with other people. Here's what I know, that if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, I know this for a fact, you want the people that you love to experience what you have experienced. All right, so here's the big part of the message right here, right now. Why don't you introduce someone to Jesus this week? Why don't you be an Andrew this week? Why don't you bring someone to Jesus this week? You say, man, pastor, you're putting pressures on us. I can't save anybody. You're right, you can't save anybody. No one's asking you to save anybody. How many of you guys know all we do is bring people to Jesus, Jesus does the saving? There's no pressure. Paul said, um, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. It's the Holy Spirit of God who regenerates people as they turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And so I don't want you to feel pressure when you evangelize, but I, I do feel like, man, in 2022, Calvary Port St. Lucie, we need to step it up when it comes to evangelism. And here's why. 
One of, my, um, one of the guys I look up to a lot is Greg Laurie. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor and um, evangelist. And um, he said this, he said that the church that doesn't evangelize will fossilize. I don't wanna pastor a dead church, right? And so we need to be telling others about the Lord. And here's what's exciting, that if the person you introduce to Christ does in fact get saved, who knows what in the world the Lord's gonna do in their life. How many of you guys have ever heard of a guy named Edward Kimball? Let me see your hands if you've ever heard of Edward Kimball. Yeah, just a few, every service is the same. Edward Kimball, a Sunday school teacher in Boston. He had no idea that when he went down to the local shoe store and went to the back stock room and found the 17-year-old young man named D.L. Moody and witnessed to him, Edward Kimball had no idea that the Lord would save D.L. Moody and then use D.L. Moody to share Christ, listen, with two continents, multiplied millions of people in America and in England and other countries in Europe. Edward Kimball had no idea what God would do, and God did it. And we thank God for the ministry of D.L. Moody. And not only that, but um, an unknown layman on a cold Sunday morning in 1850 in Colchester, England, an unknown layman shows up to church and the pastor couldn't make it to church because of the snowstorm. And so the unknown layman fills in and does what I'm doing right now for the no-show pastor. That unknown layman had no idea that one of the handful of people sitting in the pew in front of him was a 15-year-old named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And the unknown layman had no idea that God would save Spurgeon that day and make Spurgeon the most influential pastor in the entire 19th century and then use his sermons and his messages to impact millions and millions of lives, even up to our day. And listen, I highly recommend Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, for your reading. He's all over the internet. And we thank God for his ministry. Listen, Harry Monroe, the superintendent of Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, he had no idea that a young baseball player sitting on a curb there in Chicago, a young man named Billy Sunday, and all Harry Monroe did is he invited him. He said, hey, would you come down to one of the church meetings at the mission? How hard is that? And he had no idea that God would get a hold of his heart and God would save Billy Sunday and that God would use Billy Sunday, get this, to preach to approximately 100 million people in the early 20th century. And whether you agree with everything he said or not, we thank God for the ministry of Billy Sunday. And so Andrew, in our text, listen, he has no idea as he's, hey, hey, Pete, come on. I got somebody I want you to meet. He has no idea that Jesus is gonna change his brother's name and change his life and eventually impact B, billions of people through Simon Peter for the last 2,000 years. Listen, we never know what in the world God is gonna do in the life of somebody, and we know that in Peter, he changed his name from Simon to Peter. The name Peter means the rock, and eventually, what, is, what does the Lord do? He turns the loudmouth, impulsive fisherman 
into a guy with strong character who later in the New Testament, the Lord uses him to speak and to preach and to share Christ with not just Jews, but Samaritans and also Gentiles. You never know what God's gonna do. So here's my point. I know I've spent a lot of time on this, but it's important. If you have been impacted by the Lord, why don't you introduce somebody to him? Because you never know. You might lead the next Billy Graham to the Lord. You never know. And listen, whoever that person is that you introduce to Jesus, whether they become famous or not, how many of you guys know that every single person is precious in the eyes of God? Every single person. People need the Lord. And so now we go to verse 43. It's our last verse, but we're gonna spend some time um, on this. I want you guys to stay with me all the way to the end, okay? If you're looking at verse 43, can you say amen? amen. All right, so the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He's going back home where he grew up, up, up in the Galilee. And he found Philip. He found Philip. And he said to him, and I want you guys to shout out the next two words. Follow me. Follow me. Now, at that moment, Peter had no idea what that meant. <laughs> the others had no idea what that meant. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna find out what that means for the rest of our time together this morning. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? And later in the Gospels, the Lord tells us, very, very important verse in Mark 8, 34, and I encourage you later on um, this week to, to read the whole chapter so you get the whole context, but um, Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So I want everybody to shout out, deny yourself. And take up your cross. So please say, take up my cross. And follow me. Please say, follow Jesus. All right, so stay with me here. When somebody experiences a genuine conversion. So they're going their own way, they're doing their own thing, right? And all of a sudden they hear the truth about Jesus. The Lord is calling them, the Lord is wooing them. And what do they do? They turn from their sin and they turn to Jesus Christ who died on the cross in their place and rose again the third day. They turn to Jesus in genuine repentance and faith and become a child of God. Listen, when that happens, when somebody experiences a genuine conversion, they're gonna have a desire to then follow Jesus. So what does that involve? Well, first of all, if you're taking notes, it involves a denial of self. And so what did Jesus mean by this concept of denial? I think at least part of what he meant was that we have to deny our sin nature that we received from Adam. If you're new to Christ or new to the Bible or new to church, you need to know that all people were born with a sin nature which is marked by selfishness. We are not, you know, good people. <laughs> I can't say it any clearer than that. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Okay, so if you're struggling with what I'm saying right now, because I know often the culture has a different message, um, just think about this. 
What does a baby do when a baby's hungry? Yeah, screams. What does a toddler do when that toddler doesn't get their own way? Yeah, they scream, they yell, they stop their feet. They hit other people. <laughs> All right, here's my question. Who taught those little kids to do that? Nobody. You know why? Because ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to screaming, when it comes to hitting, when it comes to telling lies, when it comes to disobeying, all those things come naturally. Why? Because we inherited a sin nature from the first man, Adam. That's why. It's a fact, it's a doctrine in the New Testament, and it's a fact of life. You see it all around. But parents do have to teach their kids, right, to be nice and to keep their hands to themselves and obey. Why? Those things don't come naturally. And so we're all born with a sin nature. We all carry that sin nature into our adulthood. And if you're listening to me right now, say amen here. This is a very important statement. The only way a believer can consistently and successfully deny their sin nature is through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we get victory over our sin nature. How many of you guys are glad that when Jesus Christ went up, the Spirit of God came down? I'm so happy about that. I'm so glad about that. And so it's with the Holy Spirit's enablement that we can deny our selfishness, right? It's through the, the, the Holy Spirit's enablement as I surrender, right, to, to him. Um, he, he, he gives us the power, right, to understand that life is not all about me, myself, and I. Life is all about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's all about Jesus and serving him and serving other people. Life is all about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when we do that, God says, hey, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll meet your needs. All these things I'll bless you with. God can do that work in our hearts. He can deliver us and he can give us victory over our selfishness. He can give us victory over our self-will where we come to the place where we, we, we understand and we think and we believe, you know, it's not about what I want anymore. It's about what the Lord wants in my life. And so, I'll say it again. When somebody experiences a genuine conversion, turning to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, man, they have a desire to follow Jesus Christ. So what does that involve? All right, so if anyone, um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, okay? So secondly, if you're taking notes, we're talking about taking up our cross. Now when Jesus spoke about taking up your cross, this is one of those misinterpreted verses. A lot of people mess this up. He was not talking about, you just gotta accept the burdens of life, right? So you hear people say, a wife may say, yeah, my husband's my cross. Oh, he's so insensitive sometimes. But Jesus called me to bear my cross, and so I'm just gonna do it. Or the husband who says, yeah, my wife's my cross. Now, not my wife, okay? I'm not saying that at all. So don't even let Stacy know anything about what I'm saying right now. But the other guy who says, my wife's my cross. She's so nagging. Right, nag, nag, but, 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 but the Lord called me to bear my cross, and so I'm gonna do it. Or uh, a young couple, our in-laws, 
Oh man, they're our cross, they're always meddling, or someone has a hard job. Oh, my job, it's so hard, but Jesus said, bear your cross. Listen, all that stuff could be true, but Jesus is not talking about that right here. You gotta keep these verses in their cultural context. He's speaking to Jews in the first century, and every single Jew that, he, that hears Jesus say to take up your cross, they all knew what he meant because crucifixions were so prevalent in that day. <laughs> The Romans crucified many Jews. Sometimes they would line the streets with crosses. So everybody knew when Jesus talked about the cross, he's talking about an instrument of rejection and suffering and death. Did you guys know that right now in some parts of the world, Christians like you and I are being beaten, physically beaten for their faith? See, we, we, we live in this bubble in the United States. We have no idea. But they're being beaten right now for their faith in Jesus Christ. There's Christians right now, like you and I, in some parts of the world, they're being thrown in jail because of their faith. There's Christians who are being killed right now, this year, this month, this week, they're being killed for their faith. I read an article recently from Christian Post, and they said that approximately in the last 10 years, so that would be 2012 to 2022, that in the last 10 years, approximately 900,000 Christians were martyred for their faith. And that number, they said, is gonna increase. But we live in the United States of America, and that doesn't happen here. But here's what you need to know. If you're gonna choose to follow Jesus openly, not everybody, even in America, is gonna like it. And there's gonna be people in your life, I'm talking about if you go public with your faith, there's gonna be people in your life who are gonna ridicule you, uh, ridicule, ridicule you, they're gonna avoid you, they're gonna start gossiping about you behind your back. And when that happens, not if, but when that happens, the question is, will you still openly follow Jesus Christ or are you gonna tone down your testimony so that you can fit in, so that you can be accepted? Ladies and gentlemen, we need disciples. We need people who are gonna live openly for the Lord and just let the chips fall. That's what we need, salt and light in our community. And so as disciples, we gotta be willing to follow Jesus even if it causes suffering and rejection in our lives. I'm gonna say it again. If someone experiences a genuine conversion to Jesus Christ, turning to him, turning to him in repentance and faith, becoming a child of God, they're gonna have a desire to follow Jesus. All right, so what does that entail? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so thirdly, lastly, if you're taking notes, we're talking about following Jesus. What does that mean? Well, at least part of it means obeying his teachings. So stay with me all the way to the end here, all right? Some people say with their lips, I'm a Christian, but you cannot tell by their lives because they're not following the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so my, my thought is, can we please be different here at Calvary? Can we actually follow Jesus by following his teachings? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And you know a good place for you to start? The Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew, if you have a, a red letter edition, it's all red letters, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the teachings of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever preached, what does Jesus lay out for us? He lays out a lifestyle of good works. And I don't want to be misunderstood, so if you're listening, say amen here. <laughs> I am not saying that someone can do good works to be saved. I'm saying that true Christians do good works because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? Somebody says, where do you get that from? You're always saying that, Pastor. I get it from Paul in his letter to the Christians in Ephesus. Let's go ahead and read it out loud together. Ready? One, two, three, go. For by So this is where we get it. The pastors at Calvary were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Praise God, right? And so we become the children of God through repentance and faith. And you guys have heard me say it a thousand times. I'm not gonna re-preach it, but it's two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. We become children of God. Okay, then what? <laughs> well, the very next verse Count of three, go ahead and read it like you mean it. One, two, three, go. And so what should a new Christian do after they're saved? The first thing, first step of obedience, follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And then start following Jesus as his disciple realizing that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 